0: Lord God, we do confess that we struggle to grasp, and we do ask what we just sang. What wondrous love is this? Father, we marvel that because of Christ, there is no more wrath to be borne by us. Jesus has borne your wrath in his body. And Lord, all that remains for us is joyful acceptance and love from you. Lord, may we glory in that, may we respond to that in ways that please and glorify you. Lord, cause us to hide your word in our heart this morning that we might not sin against you, that we might grow and be conformed into the image of Christ, that we might learn to hate our sin and to pursue righteousness in light of your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah 1, if you are new to trying to find your way around the Bible, that's, o- that's okay. You know, you might try to chunk up some of these minor prophets. You know, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you can get that in your brain, then you you got a good chance of landing somewhere in there, and then you can find the book you're looking for. Um, so we'll be in Jonah this morning. We've been in Luke for quite some time. We, we've taken short breaks from the Gospel of Luke when we've reached some major transition points in Luke. So for us, that was the first nine chapters where Jesus is ministering in Galilee. Then we took a break. We did some work in Malachi. We did some work in the Psalms. And now we've made it to where Jesus is in Jerusalem, which marks another big transition in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to take some time. We'll walk through uh, the book of Jonah, and then we'll see where we go from there. Today, I want to Begin in chapter 1, obviously, but I wanted to say that we'll probably be in chapter 1 next week as well. I don't envision us making it it all the way through, but I want to kind of introduce the book and I want to look at Jonah's disobedience here. You know, besides John 3.16 and Matthew 7, if that reference doesn't ring a bell, like judge not lest you be judged, besides those two passages, perhaps the book of Jonah is the most well-known uh, passages of Scripture in the Bible. We even find reference to it in lots of pop culture. Some of you remember the old Pinocchio story and the Disney movie that came out, and they get swallowed by a whale. Well, that's an ode to Jonah. More recently, uh, Iron Man. You guys, you know, if you don't know Pinocchio, you might know Iron Man. Um, you know, he's going to fly into this robotic whale, like, alien invasion thing, and he tells this artificial intelligence, like, uh, machine, like, have you ever heard the story of Jonah, and he flies into the belly of the whale, right? Even Marvel's willing to kind of go here, because they know it's, it's such a familiar story in our world. Even Bruce Springsteen has a song called Swallowed Up in the Belly of the Whale. You know, it's no born in the USA, but... It's okay. What is what is evident though as as we think about these pop cultural references to Jonah, all of these center on the whale or we'll see it's a it's a great fish. All right? They they swallow or they they focus on Jonah being swallowed by this great fish. And that's certainly a major part of the story, but as we kind of launch into studying Jonah over the next several weeks, I want us to, to keep in our mind something that G. Campbell Morgan said. He said this men have, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Okay, so as we approach the book of Jonah, I don't, you know, these details matter and they're important and we're going to talk about them, but we don't want to lose sight that God is the main actor in every narrative of Scripture. We don't want to focus so hard on the great fish that we lose sight of the great God. So what do we see about God's greatness in the book of Jonah? Well, sort of the overarching theme is going to be God's great mercy towards the undeserving. of us undeserving. These sailors in chapter 1 are undeserving, and Jonah is undeserving. And so what we see is the presence of these undeserving, even hostile people serve as sort of the backdrop in which God's mercy shines even Brighter, you think about how, how stars shine brighter in the, in the darkest night. Well, sin is sort of like, and, and these undeserving people are sort of like this black backdrop that serve to highlight and emphasize and demonstrate the glory of God and how He demonstrates mercy to those who are undeserving. And so today we're going to look at Jonah, his, his disobedience. We're going to look at what might be called the insanity of disobedience. And I don't say that as like the guy that's figured it out. I'm looking at you guys and saying, are you insane? Why would you ever disobey, right? Fellow soldier in the trenches trying to become like Jesus together. But it is, it, we're going to look at the, the insanity of disobeying God's word. And so there's really two, two points this morning To disobey God is to try to do the impossible, which is to flee from God's presence. And then secondly, we'll see to to disobey God's word is to do the injurious, that which injures you. It's to run to your own destruction. So let's look at that first point. To disobey God's word is to attempt the impossible, to flee from God's presence. Jonah 1.1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. What's interesting about Jonah, it sort of sits in these minor prophets, but it's it's somewhat unique in that it's it's a story. It's a true story. We call it historical narrative. It doesn't focus primarily on on the message that Jonah gives to a people. Instead, it, it focuses a lot on Jonah and his response to the message that he's supposed to give, and then the people's response to his short message. So it's a record of events, and it starts off with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And the messages arise and go to that great city Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So we know that that, that Jonah is a prophet, not only because of this, this introductory phrase, the word of the Lord came to, that's the way God introduces speech to prophets, but also over in first, or 2 Kings 14, it talks about Jonah, the son of Amittai, the servant of the Lord, delivering a message that Israel's boundaries are going to expand in the reign of King Jeroboam II. So, Jonah is a prophet, and as a prophet, he had a privileged position before the Lord. He's the servant of the Lord, and he's been set aside for a specific purpose that is, to receive the word of the Lord and to deliver the, the word of the Lord, to relay God's intended message to God's intended audience. Amos, who was a contemporary of Jonah, said the Lord has done nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. So the prophets are in this privileged position where they receive the secrets of the Lord or the revelation of the Lord, and then they go and they proclaim that message. This is a, a high position. Elijah describes it as standing in the presence of the Lord, awaiting His message. So this is, Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, awaiting the message of the Lord, and it comes there, but this message is unique. First, there's, there's sort of a sense of urgency in the message, arise, go, up, it's like up, go. You don't even have time to say the word and, right? There's just two imperative commands right together, get up, go. There's this urgency in the, in the command, but that isn't necessarily a surprising part. Right, the surprise is actually Jonah's destination, and his destination is a foreign place to preach uh, a warning to a foreign people, and that's pretty unique actually among the prophets. Other prophets spoke about foreign nations, talked about foreign nations and what God's doing with foreign nations, but they most often did so from within the confines of Israel's border, and oftentimes it was speaking to israel about them saying don't don't go after egypt don't rely on egypt it was a warning or warning israel like if you keep this up another foreign army is going to come in here and they're going to invade you but jonah's called to get up and go to this foreign people and deliver god's message directly to them and this place is nineveh it's a great city Maybe not in the sense that we would call Custer or Rapid a, a great city. It's not great morally, right? but it's great in terms of its size. It's great in terms of its influence. It's not the capital at this point of Assyria when, when Jonah's living and ministering, but, but it's an influential city in Assyria. So it's not Washington, D.C. It's like New York City or L.A. Right? Go there and proclaim the message to them. And this Assyrian Empire where Nineveh sits, it's a brutal place. They they found records where their leaders are just bragging about some, some of the violence and brutality that they committed. This wicked treatment of people. It wouldn't even be probably good for us to discuss in this environment some of the things that they would do to their enemies and boast about. We can just maybe say it this way. They were exalted in their own eyes, boasted in their own wickedness. They were anti God. And their evil, God says, has come up before his eyes. They had run up a tab, and the bill was due. Right? Nineveh, in, in looking back to, to Genesis, it's similar to the way that uh, Sodom is spoken about where God comes down and He's going to inspect Sodom. Nineveh, in that sense, is another uh, another Sodom whose sins have prompted God to act. Nineveh's been under inspection because of their sin, and you don't want to be under divine inspection. You know, one thing we're reminded about in this passage is that God is not just the God of Israel, but He is the God of Assyria. And he is the God of the Ninevites. Nineveh's greatness, Nineveh's size, Nineveh's power and their influence did not exempt them from their responsibility to Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. He is, again quoting Genesis 18, he is the judge of all the earth. The judge of all the earth. So the greatness of God... And the expansiveness of God, and, and, and even as we see, the, the, the greatness of God's mercy does not mean that He's just a, a, squishy, a squishy God who does not care. Right? So, God intends to send Jonah to cry out against them. But as we know, Jonah has other plans, he obeys like command 1A. God said, Get up and go. And Jonah gets up, right? But he goes the other direction. Instead of going to Nineveh, he flees to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction. And the text tells us he intends to flee from the presence of the Lord. What Jonah is doing as a prophet, he's abandoning his station, he's refusing his orders. He's no longer wishing to do what what Elijah said and stand in the presence of the Lord and await his message. You know, we actually, in sort of brilliant literary fashion, we don't actually find out till chapter 4 what Jonah is so upset about, but we can already begin to see and guess that it has something to do with those Ninevites, the wickedness of those in Nineveh. But then why would, why would Jonah run, right? If his message is their wickedness, their, their impending calamity has come up before me, I'm going I'm to judge them. And Jonah doesn't like these people. He does not want them to experience the, the steadfast love of God and the mercy of God. Why then would he run, wouldn't that be sort of a victory lap for Jonah to go point at the Ninevites and say, well, you're going to be overthrown, and I can't wait to watch it. Well, Not exactly. right? Because Jonah understands, even in his work as a prophet, understands that implied in the warnings of Scripture is a call to repent and turn. And if you turn to the Lord... Uh, To quote the Ninevites, who knows? Maybe the Lord will relent from his impending disaster. So Jonah knows if he calls out and he warns them of this impending judgment, they might turn and they might find forgiveness and grace and mercy in God. And he does not want them to have a chance to repent of their sin and find mercy. What's interesting, though, is that Jonah has been living in Israel, who even in, in Jonah's lifetime is a recipient of mercy that they did not deserve, right? We said that he, he kind of called out that, that he, he prophesied that Israel's borders are going to expand during the reign of Jeroboam II. I don't know if you remember when we were there in Bible hour, but, but Jeroboam was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings, he says he caused Israel to sin by not turning them away from the idolatry that had been sort of passed down from his predecessors. He was not a a good king. Idolatry was rampant in Israel during Jonah's ministry, yet despite that, despite that, God had mercy on them. In fact, in 1 Kings or 2 Kings 14, There was no one to help them, the text says. No one to help them, so he used even a wicked king to expand his borders. There's no one to help him, so so he had pity on them, the text says. So Jonah's actually been the recipient and lived among people who received the undeserved mercy of God, but he's unwilling to go proclaim it to others. If Israel is a candidate for mercy, maybe Maybe Nineveh is a candidate for mercy. For Jonah, the mercy of God is scandalous if it reaches outside the borders of Israel. You know, we might, we might find it easy to sort of pile on, right? We've talked about this even as we've watched the disciples kind of fumble their way through the Gospel of Luke. and It might be easy to sort of pile on Jonah but I think we can sympathize with him, with him a bit. Right? Because we're all confronted with, with God's word in various ways. There's this book called Gilead, and the narrator is an older man who's been in, in ministry and he's writing to his young son. He sort of had a child late, late, late in life. And there's this guy that he doesn't trust, that, that's sort of working wiggling his way into the family. And the narrator says this about this guy that's sort of loosely associated with the family. He says, if he pushed me down the stairs, he's telling this to his son, if he pushed me down the stairs, I would have worked out the theology of forgiving him by the time I hit the bottom. He says, but if he harms you in any way, I fear my theology would fail. So what's he doing? He's he's admitting that even though he knows what's right, He finds it hard and is afraid what his sinful heart might do if he's put in this impossibly hard situation. He's saying it's hard to forgive enemies. And it's hard for for me to want forgiveness for my enemies. That's what Jonah's wrestling with. He doesn't want forgiveness on on his enemies. So Jonah runs, and he runs towards Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is uh, significant. Tarshish was sort of on the, on the edge of, ge- of Israel's sort of geographical understanding. Right? It was like as far as they could think to get away. In Isaiah 66, it mentions Tarshish as a place where, where they don't know the glory of the Lord. They don't know Yahweh. They have not known him So so if Jonah can make it there, maybe he gets out from underneath the responsibility that he has as a prophet. Maybe the word of God can't reach me in Tarshish. I used to think about Jonah sort of like a two-year-old playing hide-and-seek. They cover their eyes and they're out in the wide open and they think because their eyes are closed you can't see them. You know, I used to read Jonah like he's he's a two-year-old. He thinks he can run away from God. I I think he probably intellectually understands Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, it even mentions the sea and the waters and the ocean. You can't go there. I think he probably intellectually understands these. What we have in, in the story of Jonah is a prophet of the Lord who has a clear command and directly disobeys. John says, go west, and I'm going to get mixed up here. John says, go west, and Jonah goes east. So this is not an issue of understanding for Jonah, right? This is, this is an issue of volition. He's confronted with the word of the Lord, and he does not want to do it. I think for us, this unmasks the power or, or, or it unmasked the, the deceitfulness of man's sinful heart. It unmasked the deceitfulness of man's sinful heart. Even, even someone like Jonah, who had been used in ministry, had prophesied correctly, which Deuteronomy 18 says that, that sort of uh, is a stamp of approval, that he's, he is a prophet of the Lord, he is the servant of the Lord. One who had stood in a privileged position to declare God's word to God's people. He runs from obedience. And he runs from the very God that he is called to serve. And I think there is a a warning for us in the text that I hope you this morning don't underestimate your own heart and the deceitfulness of your own heart. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. These sinful desires that we we wrestle with, they are still a, a powerful pull in our lives and will remain so until we are with Christ. The the, the flesh is so deceitful, the heart of man is so deceitful that even though you want to please God, even though you want to glorify Him, you want to do Him, you find yourself doing the very things that you hate and not doing the very things that you want to do. If you're a Christian this morning, you desire to glorify God. That's, That's a gift from the Lord. That's part of your union with Christ. You have a new desire. I want to please God. But we find ourselves often living for the fulfillment of our own desires it's hard it's humbling to admit how often we, we have God's clear word to us in in the scriptures and we turn away we turn away from him and we flee to our own devices so as the spotlight sort of turns from Jonah to to our own hearts we should we should be not not saying oh well Now I kind of let Jonah off the hook a little bit. No, it's sort of the other way around, right? We should be as shocked and as dismayed that we have God's word as as God's new covenant people. We have His Spirit, yet we often are disobedient like Jonah. So to to disobey God's word is to to seek to, to flee from His presence. The second thing I want us to notice this morning is Another reason why disobedience is is so bad, it's such a wildly bad idea. To disobey God's word is to do the injurious, it's to run toward destruction. Look there in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah rises up, he's going to flee, he makes it to port, he has to pay his own way in order to get away from the presence of the Lord. But we know that that his attempt is is futile. The Lord, the the text says, hurled a great storm at him. And this this is a serious storm, right? This isn't being out on Center Lake and the wind picks up a little bit. We get a sense of the severity of it uh, there in verse 4, it says the, sh- the ship threatened to break up. And what's going on is actually the, the author personifies the ship. It's the ship itself that's saying, I think I'm about to break apart. I mean, this, this is a serious storm. We see it also in that the these sailors who were hired to do this job, presumably they were able to do the job that they were paid to do, the, the sailors, the mariners themselves, are really scared, right? They, In fact, they begin to throw their cargo overboard. They're calling out to any sort of little G, God that they worship. They want to make the ship lighter and cry out for divine help. So the captain goes down. He shakes Jonah awake, pleads with Jonah to pray to his God. Maybe that will work. They don't know Yahweh yet. But well, maybe that'll work. You probably have a God too. You come from somewhere else. Why don't you pray to him? Maybe, maybe your God will, will help us. This is a serious storm that the Lord has hurled at Jonah. And we're going to spend more time on, on this next week. But for now, I want us just to, to think and to notice that God. what God is doing is he's stopping Jonah in his tracks. Right. He's keeping him from fleeing. He's bringing him back to himself. Jonah had put himself in the way of of God's discipline and drawing him back. One theologian, I, I quoted this at the Judgment and Mercy Conference. You may have heard me say this before, but I just love this quote about fleeing from God and how we ought to turn to Him. Bavinck says this, When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you from those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men you remove yourself into your room even our even in your room you fear some witness from another quarter you're just fearful you're just fleeing i want to get away so i can uh do my own thing you retire into your heart there you meditate and bobbing says god is more inward than your heart." You can't even meditate in your own mind and have God not be there and understand and know the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. And he says, So if you can't get away from your heart, where will you flee? Where will you go? You, if he's more inward than your heart, you can't go anywhere. He says, Will you not follow yourself wherever you go? And if yourself is there, then he's there because he's more inward in your heart. But since there is one more inward than even yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whether you may flee. Will you flee from Him, flee to Him? He says, quit running from Him, run to Him. You can't run from God angry. You can't run from His anger, so you run to Him, find grace and mercy in Him, and be reconciled to Him. What good news it is in those words that you can't flee from Him, but you can flee to Him. Those those words are not just a warning, but they're an invitation. Much like Jonah's warning will be an invitation. You can't flee from Him, but you can come to Him. Admitting how easy it is to want to run from Him, you can come and find mercy in Him. But even as we, even as God is pursuing Jonah, he's hurling the storm, we'll see other ways that God controls sovereignly, controls nature and creation to, to draw Jonah to himself. But even as God is pursuing Jonah, the end of verse 5 lets us know that Jonah has gone down into the inner parts of the ship and fallen asleep. Now, one thing I want us to be careful about, and we've tried to be careful in Luke, Try to be careful here because it's similar. It's, it's a lot of narrative. We want to be careful about not spiritualizing everything. You know, the joke is it makes for good preaching, but is it, is it the point of the text? I remember being in Bible college. I was a fairly new Christian, and these guys would come, and they would preach texts like Jonah, and, and I, I got to this point where I realized, well, I thought, like, I don't think I can preach the Bible. Because these guys up on stage, they like see things that I can't see. I, I don't. They must have some spiritual glasses to see things that I'm not able to see. And if that's what preaching is, then I guess I can't preach. I lack that insight, to, or maybe the creativity to sort of find things in the text and create a whole sermon about things. So I was really, really discouraged um, until I took hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. And I realized that, that some of these guys that were coming and they were preaching, they were the reason I couldn't see it is because it wasn't in the text, right? They're sort of pulling one word out and they're saying, you know, the, the, the funny example is like this guy was preaching, I don't know, 1st, 2nd Samuel, somewhere in there, um, you know, Jonathan's upset with Saul that he's not attacking the Philistines, so he's going to crawl through and, and see if he can surprise these Philistines. And it says there's rocks sharp rocks on the right and sharp rocks on the left and you know the guy says you know why it says that because if you want to do something for the Lord you're going to want to go left you want to go right but you need to go straight through and that's sort of thing that I didn't see in the text I'm like what do you you know I leaned over to my friend Tyler and I said Tyler I, I thought it said there's sharp rocks on the right and sharp rocks on the left because there's sharp rocks on the right and sharp rocks on the left so what so anyways I i wasn't sitting on giving examples there, but when I say that the text is pointing us to the fact that disobedience leads to this downward path towards the grave, towards shield, towards destruction, when I say that sin is a destroyer, I want you to see it in the story and not just say, oh wow, maybe Cow can see things that I can't see. And so I think what I think the author is wanting us to see that, that to run away from the Lord, to flee the Lord, is to head down this, this path of destruction. And I think the way the author helps us do this is by emphasizing, repeating the word down, and then uh, you know, visualizing in chapter 2 the sinking of Jonah. This idea, it, it, this word down is repeated twice in verse 3. right? He, Jonah, Jonah gets up, he's going to flee from from the Lord he goes down to Joppa he goes down in the ship and in verse 5 he's gone down into the heart of the ship and this theme I think continues in chapter 2 where Jonah has been thrown overboard and he's sinking deeper and deeper Jonah says I was cast into the deep the gates of Sheol the the grave had ensnared me The deep surrounded him. His life was waning. He had one foot in the grave because he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. From the moment Jonah rejects the word of the Lord, it is down, 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 sinking. Maybe we'll sing that sinking down here in a couple weeks. He's headed towards the grave. He's headed towards Sheol. He's headed towards destruction. He's headed towards disaster. Physically, he's heading one direction, but spiritually, he's heading south. He's heading south. He's going down. I think this is such a vivid picture of what sin does. Right? It is a destroyer. It steals life instead of giving it. It injures, it harms, it tears down, it kills. And Jonah falls for the, for the oldest trick in the book. right? The lie that was believed in the Garden of Eden is that God is holding out on you and you need to, you need to subvert His authority and go get that thing that He says you can't have and then you'll be really satisfied. You'll, ha- you'll, you'll find life there. But Adam and Eve were deceived. They didn't find life. Death flooded their lives. It flooded all of creation. You know, they say, did, did Adam and Eve die spiritually or did they begin to die physically? Yes. Sin separated from the, them from God, introduced physical death into this world. This is what sin has done from the beginning. From words that, that are like the Proverbs, Proverbs says, are like sword thrusts. Right? So, from words that wound others to worry, to lying, to life dominating sins, to murder, sin is a destroyer and sin will never satisfy. It's always the bad end of the deal, it is always a terrible trade, it will always cost you more than you hoped. We cannot keep sin sort of in a nice little box that we can kind of open when we want, but we can keep this thing under control. It's it's, it's not the way it works. On the other hand, so here's sin. Here's disobedience to God's Word. It destroys, it, it kills, it's moving in this death, this deathward direction. On the other hand, Psalm 16 tells us that in God's presence is the fullness of joy. In His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we've got the fullness of joy. The the joy we might have in living life under the glory of God and to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. You and I were designed for, for this, to know and to love and to glorify God and to find our joy wrapped up in Him. We were designed to love and obey Him And sin has disrupted that. And outside of Christ, anyone outside of Christ is not only doomed to experience the futility of sin in this life, but to bear the wrath of God in the next. And that's why we rejoice and sing about and talk about and proclaim the work of Christ because it's to reconcile an undeserving people who are headed towards their own destruction back to God, who has the fullness of joy in Him and, in, and pleasures forevermore, the text says. Jesus laid down His life on the cross. Even, even there, sin is unmasked. We see what it costs God to accomplish this reconciliation that in order to accomplish reconciliation, the Son of God incurred death. The gospel is that Jesus has borne the wrath for you so that you might enjoy the fullness of God, so that you might be reconciled to Him. You know, if if you don't know Christ this morning, I would encourage you, turn to Him. And if you have questions, if you have questions about Jesus, what did He do? What is this gospel? I'll be at the back. If somebody invited you to church this morning, they would love to talk to you about Christ. But I'll be shaking hands at the back. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about Christ. For the Christian this morning, we we too are reminded that sin is a terrible master, that we can rest assured then that God's prohibitions and His commands are always good. His prohibitions and His commands are always good. Or we might say it this way, if God Himself is good, then the Word of God is always good. If God Himself is always good, then the Word of the Lord is good. The Word is it's hard. It's hard. I said we can sympathize with Jonah. It's hard to obey. Jonah came across a hard word, a word that he did not want to obey. Faith would have looked like trusting in God's character and obeying. I hope this morning you're reminded of the goodness of God. I wonder if we could just think for a moment, how are we doing with those parts of Scripture we find particularly difficult? Hard to believe, hard to keep, hard to obey. Maybe you're in a in the midst of a tough circumstance at work and you just want to send your way out of it. God's word to you is good right you're in a hard you're in a hard marriage and there's no biblical justification for divorce and, and you, you the word is hard, it's hard to keep and God is good and his word is good. Some of you young people you think your parents have completely lost touch with reality but you're called to obey them. And His Word is good. It's good because He's good. You think your soulmate is someone that you're not currently married to? Listen, God says no, and His Word is good. You want to live life on your terms, for your glory, and God's Word is in the way of that? His Word is good. It's always good. You want to cling to bitterness? Cling to bitterness and not forgive someone that's hurt you. His word says forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you, and His word is always good. This morning, if you have turned to Christ, you know, you might be thinking, man, Jonah had such a privileged position. He was a prophet. The Lord revealed His secrets to him, and He got to go proclaim the secrets. The word of the Lord came directly to Him. I'm no prophet. So, does this apply to me? I want to I end just by reminding us that, yeah, we're not prophets. If someone says they're a prophet, go somewhere else. You may not be a prophet, but you have a privileged position before God. We, too, have the word of the Lord. You are privileged in that you don't need special revelations. God has revealed His secrets in His word. The mystery of Christ revealed to you in the Scriptures. The will of God. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. He's given you His Word in the Bible. You have His very words. And we saw in John chapter 20 that these are are the type of words that give life. These are the type of words that the Spirit of God uses to change your hearts. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise is, gives me life. Also, if you know Christ this morning, know that your privilege is found in Jesus Christ. You are a person who is united to Christ. You have been united with him in such a way that not only have your sins been forgiven, but the power of sin has been broken in you. The way the the way the New Testament writers write is not like, man, wouldn't it be great to be Jonah It's how blessed are we to live on this side of the cross. The prophets long to know when the stuff that they wrote about would be fulfilled and we get to know it. It's been given to us in Christ. We experience it in Him. The prophets long for the days that we get to enjoy, days in which we get to look back at what Christ has done for us. Like Jonathan, like... Nineveh's sin that, that, that provides sort of the backdrop for the mercy of God. He's kind to, kind to Jonah, even in hurling the storm. He's going to be kind to the sailors. He's going to be kind to, to Nineveh. And that sort of, these undeserving people magnify the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. Romans 5.8 says our sin does the same thing. But God has demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know? How can we be assured of God's love? It wasn't because you you made yourself really clean and then you came to Him. He said, I guess that's acceptable. It's because while you were still in sin, Christ died for you. He will never forsake you. Right? Perhaps you feel like you've blown it. That God said to go west and you went east or vice versa. That you've been running, walking in disobedience know this morning that you can turn to Him and He will deal gently with you. Don't flee from Him, flee to Him. And as we, as we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, let's run to Him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we admit that we fall so short, yet as we sing about... Your great love is showered upon us in Christ Jesus. May we rejoice. May we respond in glad singing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.